You just missed a home run. I missed out on an incredible deal you were offering at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. It just started. You can get beautiful Pella Windows and pay no interest for four years. Visit PellaWI.com. The world's largest music festival is happening now. We're live on the Summerfest grounds of the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone. Now broadcasting from the fellow windows and doors of Wisconsin WTMJ Mobile Studio. Here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. We are down here at Summerfest, my final Summerfest broadcast for summer 2022. I'll be here until 3 o'clock, and then, uh, of course, the gang from Wisconsin's afternoon news will be in. Uh, Today is the first day where... Well, the weather has not been necessarily a Chamber of Commerce day, at least right now. We've got a, a steady rain that is going on. It's not something, if you're planning on coming down here, it's not something that to discourage you or stop you because there's still lots of places you can go to get inside, and it's not supposed to last all day. But you know, right now we've got a little bit of a steady rain that is falling, and it's a little bit cooler than it's been before, and some people might like that. So if you're planning to come down here, it's definitely sweatshirt weather or a jacket or something like that. No question about it. But don't let that stop you from coming down. There's a lot of great entertainment that's going on here. I was down here last night, had an opportunity to go to the Rod Stewart show. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. The the review in the paper, I guess, makes me wonder what show did the, did the reviewer attend. But you end up getting that a lot. Hey, earlier on, we were talking about the, the Brewers game tonight. The Brewers opened a three-game series in American Family Field against Pittsburgh. And, of course, if you want to listen to it, no problem right here on WTMJ. If you want to watch it, well, that's a whole different story because this game is going to be aired exclusively on Apple TV. So it's not available through your local cable provider. You know, normally you would tune into Bally's or whatever. It's not available there. This is one of these deals, and it has nothing to do with, I, I think, the, the local broadcasters at all. It has to do with Major League Baseball trying to squeeze every dollar they possibly can out of different providers. So in order to watch this, you have to have, first of all, you have to have an Apple ID, and then you have to download the Apple TV app. Um, You don't have to necessarily be an Apple TV subscriber, but you have to have that Apple TV ID, and then you can log on and you can watch the game for free. But clearly what they're trying to do with this is to get more people interested in Apple TV and more people logged on and hoping that if you go on to the and download this to the Apple TV app, to watch the baseball game, you'll say, oh, there's other stuff around here, and I'm willing to pay 10 or 12 or $15 a month or whatever it costs. But if you're looking for the ball game tonight on TV, it's exclusively on Apple TV+. And that's the decision Major League Baseball has made. It's not the Brewers' choice either. I think it's Major League Baseball just because they want to try to squeeze some more dough out of that. So don't frustrate yourself by looking at that. All right. I want to start off the show on... Just kind of a a brief walk down memory lane because there was some sad news that that came out yesterday. If you, now I would understand, I understand if you're like under 45, some of these names that I'm going to throw around don't, don't mean anything to you. Maybe you've seen YouTube videos or something like that. But if you're older than 45 and you grew up around here, th- these were people who were a big part of Milwaukee television history. 
it, it used to be, before we had cable and before we had the 500 channels and things like that, there were really three major over-the-air stations. There was Channel 4, there was Channel 6, there was Channel 12. Then there was the PBS Channel 10, and there was uh, 18 and 24, which were the, the UHF stations. Um, each of the TV news sets, 4, 6, and 12, they each had their own weatherman. And I, I say weatherman because there weren't too many women that were in there at the time. And back in the day, they, they, they weren't meteorologists. Nowadays, to be on television, you, you pretty much have to have a meteorology a degree in, in meteorology. But it wasn't the case back then. And if, if you were watching TV in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s around here, the, the, the weathermen were incredibly well-known on Channel 12, the, the weather guy, starting in like 1967 through 1980, was a guy named Howard Gurnett. And he was, he was not a meteorologist. He started out in, t- in radio in Wausau and then morphed into TV and then came down here. And he was the weather guy at Channel 12 from like 67 to 1980. And for a good portion of that time, he also hosted a show at noon called Dialing for Dollars, which was one of these deals where they, they would they they they'd have small amounts of money that they'd give away and they'd make calls to people and you know if you were listening and you knew the count and the amount then then you'd get twenty five or fifty dollars or whatever the, the pot was but the weather guy hosted the dialing for dollars show okay so that was channel twelve channel four had Bill Carlson and Bill Carlson legendary weather guy who was I believe a, a meteorologist but Bill Carlson was the weather guy on Channel 4 from for about 20 years like the early 1950s to the early 1970s and there, there's hysterical YouTube videos of Bill Carlson that are out there because he this shows how things have changed he would actually do live commercials during the, the weather like he'd, he'd give the weather forecast and then he'd walk over to a table and he, he did for, he did uh, commercials for like coffee like butternut coffee and then later later Folgers coffee and what they would do on the set is they met it was it's hysterical because some of the I don't know if it's the was the producers or I don't know if it was the camera guys or whatever but they would mess around with the cans of coffee and so there, there's one I remember I was watch I watched this live and I've also now seen it on YouTube so he, he's, he's just done the weather he goes over and I think it was a can of Folgers coffee and what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to talk about how great Folgers coffee is then he's supposed to pick up the can and they had cut the bottom out of the can of coffee so when he lifts this like pound can of coffee it just goes all over it was pretty it was pretty funny but Bill Carlson he was at Channel 4. He was replaced by Paul Joseph in 1972, and, and Joseph went on to a long and distinguished career as well. But the third channel, and this is what I was kind of alluding to on sort of a sad note, the third weather guy that was big in that period of time was on Channel 6, was a guy named Ward Allen. Ward Allen was not, again, a meteorologist. He was just a, a guy who I think had radio background as well and then kind of morphed into TV. But Ward Allen was perhaps most famous, not for giving the weather, but he was most famous for his sidekick, who was Albert the Alley Cat. And I, I know when, when you tell these stories, if you if you were to talk to a, like a modern uh, journalism point, um, the a modern journalism or, or meteorology now, Albert was a puppet. <laughs> he, he was a puppet that had like a stocking cap on. And actually, I went to school with the guy who, who was the, the, 
his the daughter of the guy who was the puppeteer. But it was Ward Allen and Albert. And this was an incredibly big thing. Like, so Ward Allen would be giving the, the weather forecast. Sometimes Albert would do it. it it's just you kind of watch this and you go, man, stuff has really changed over the last, like, 40 years and all. But they were huge stars. And, and Ward Allen and Albert, the puppet, they would go out and they would do these presentations at schools and all over the community. It was a really, really big thing. In 1968, Ward Allen and Albert, did I mention Albert was a puppet, were named the number one weather team in the country by a group of TV executives. Um, in the early 1970s, there, there started to be a push that, well, if we're going to deliver weather you know, on, on the news, on TV, we need to have meteorologists. We can't have guys like Howard Gurnett. We can't have guys like you know, Ward Allen. And we certainly can't have puppets that are delivering the weather. So they, they pretty much started phasing out all the, what I'm going to call, sort of the old school guys who came up through radio and then morphed into um, you know, TV. Um, but they started phasing them out. So Ward Allen was kind of pushed out in the early you know, 1970s. But just a legendary figure. Now, I bring this up because the sad news is that, you know, Ward Allen passed away, um, I think yesterday is what they announced. He was 87 years old, and he, he, he passed away yesterday. Um, but he had, he had stayed in the Milwaukee area, and he and his wife had, had run a, a company and things like that. It was just a, it was just a, it was, it was a rare time in, in the Milwaukee in the wa- Milwaukee media, and and nowadays I, I don't mean this as a diss, but nowadays, you know, the the weather people are more. The word I'm going to use is ubiquitous. I mean, you know, I could say, okay, name name the weather people at the various TV stations, and, and maybe you'd be able to do that. Um, you know, maybe you say Brian Goddard, Channel Four. By, Brian Goddard's retiring. Um, I guess there's Mark Baden at Channel Twelve. I'm not sure who it is at Six. I'm not sure who it is at Fifty Eight. I don't mean that as a knock, but I'm telling you, in, in 1971, if you would have said to anybody in this area, name the three weather people, and they, and they, they would have, they would have known them because they were personalities in addition to just kind of giving the weather. That's changed. But um, Ward Allen, Ward Allen um, just uh, passes away at the age of 87. And again, it's another one of these examples. For those of us who grew up around here and remember kind of the, the golden age of Milwaukee TV, it's um, just a walk down memory lane. Rest in peace, Ward. When we come back, all right, if you're trying to get from Port Washington to, to West Bend in the next 60 days, Good luck. I'll explain, and we'll discuss the larger issue. This is the Backstreet Boys performing tonight at the uh, Amphitheater, American Family Amphitheater, down here at Summerfest. Check them out. It is a it's a wonderful facility. This is the second last night with Rod Stewart was the second show I've been to in the in the revised Amphitheater, and it's it's really special. They they've done just a, a great job, and I. I, you know, if they hadn't done some of the changes that they did, I, I don't think they would have been able to stage, Rod Stewart would have been able to stage the show in the fashion that they staged it yesterday. The concourses are wider. It's a lot easier to get around in there. They, they've done really a great job with this. Um, Milwaukee's Lakefront is rocking. WTMJ, as we've been saying, are broadcasting live, and our staff can't do what they do on an empty stomach. We want to say thanks to our friends at Major Goolsby's, so the staff does not have to. Stop by, grab some food there, and don't forget to come by and see us. All right. Um, every Sunday morning, 
during the summer or most Sunday mornings. I play golf with some friends of mine at Hawthorne Hills, which is one of the two Ozaki County public courses, and it's up in it's up north of Saukville. I've been doing I've been going out to that course for more years than I, I care to remember. Um, getting there on Sunday is going to be a lot more difficult. The major east-west state highway that connects, say, West Bend to Saukville, Port Washington, etc., is Highway 33. And right about halfway between West Bend and Saukville, or maybe a little bit outside of Saukville, right at Highway I, there is an intersection that has now been closed down. So there's no way that you're going to be able to go directly, again, from Saukville over to West Bend. And and that's the route that pretty much everybody takes. It's closed down because around Highway I, at this intersection, they've determined that it's it's a very, very dangerous intersection. They've had a higher than number of expected accidents, including fatalities. And it, it makes sense. If you've ever, if you can picture this, it's an area where you're, you're coming out of Saukville or coming out of the West Bend area. You're going 55 miles an hour. You're, you're coming down. It's sort of a dip in the road. And then you have people who are trying to cross 33. They've got a stop sign, but it's really kind of hard to see. And what happens, particularly with some motorcycles, is some motorcycles will pull out and they'll get hit by cars or some cars will pull out and the motorcycles will hit them. It, it's been an intersection that's, that's bad. And they've had a disproportionate number of fatalities. So they had a number of choices as to how they were going to do it. They could put in stop signs, uh, make it a four-way stop. They decided not to do that. They could put in traffic signals, you know, red lights, green lights, and things like that to try to regulate traffic. They decided not to do that. What they are doing is they are putting in a roundabout. Yes, a roundabout. And it's going to take them about 60 days to do that. So if you're trying to get around that area, it's, it's just going to be a colossal mess for the next 60 days because there's, you know, they've got detours and stuff, but there's really no quick, easy way to do it. They're going to have to route you, I, I think, probably pretty far out of your way to get where you're intending to go. Now, roundabouts are found at about 1% of the intersections on the state highway system. The the most recent numbers I have are from two months ago. 8% of state-controlled intersections have traffic signals. About 1% have roundabouts. There are 457 roundabouts in the state of Wisconsin. 266 are on state highways. 191 are on local highways. But this is clearly the way that the State Department of Transportation is trying to go. They're trying to put in more roundabouts if they can. Why? They say, first of all, roundabouts are a good economic value. They're they're cheaper to operate, obviously, than having to fool with, like, traffic signals and things like that, where you're going to have the constant maintenance. Roundabouts are pretty much proven to reduce the number of severe injury crashes and deaths. Now, roundabouts don't necessarily stop the number of, of collisions, but what they do is that they stop the situations where you have, you know, somebody that's going 70 miles an hour and hits, you know, sideswipes somebody else who's trying to cross the street. You will have collisions, you'll have accidents and roundabouts, but generally they tend to be fender benders because people have to slow down, they're going slower, and if there's impact, it, it's rarely like side to side, it's that you, you hit the fender of somebody else. The state also says that um, 
roundabouts, reduce delay, and improve traffic flow. I'm not necessarily convinced of that, but that's what they say. But in any event, now a roundabout is being put in there. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is clearly the way the State Department of Transportation is going. They prefer, whenever possible, to use roundabouts as opposed to other methods of trying to regulate traffic, like stop signs or, or stoplights or things of the like. Roundabouts create controversy. They are safer to an extent as far as reducing serious injuries, and they are cheaper. But people generally hate them. What do you think about the trend of using roundabouts? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in a moment. I'll be the We are broadcasting live from Summerfest 2022. Milwaukee's lakefront is rocking. WTMJ is broadcasting live from the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone at Summerfest. Come by and see your favorite WTMJ personalities. I want to make sure we have enough time for this conversation. Um, another roundabout is going in. This time it's it's on Highway 33 and I, which is right outside of Sockville. It's going to be a pain for the next 60 days because there's no good way to go if you're trying to go from, say, West Bend to come in to hit the freeway or trying to go west from Sockville. There, there's or Port Washington. There's no good way to go around it. But it's a bad intersection, and the DOT has decided, hey, roundabouts are the way to go. All right, how do you feel about roundabouts? We continue the conversation in just a moment. Welcome back. We are broadcasting live from Summerfest. It's, it's, the weather's kind of weird down here because it looks like the sun is trying to come out, and yet it's it's raining, so I'm expecting we're going to see some rainbows soon. It, it's not raining hard enough to make you change your plans and stuff. Um, it is a little bit cooler. Bring a sweatshirt, bring a poncho. The rain is supposed to stop a little bit later on. Um, we're talking about roundabouts, and what got me started is that they're, they've closed Highway 33 between West Bend and Sockville, and it's going to be closed for about two months because they're, they're putting in a roundabout at Highway I. It's an intersection I travel like every week. And I understand why they're doing it. They've had a disproportionate number of fatal accidents there, and they've decided to go with a roundabout instead of stop signs or instead of, like, traffic lights and all. But roundabouts continue to be controversial. About 1% of the intersections in the state highway system have them. There are 457 roundabouts in the state as of last month. We're discussing it. 855-616-1620. Kurt in Wauwatosa. Kurt, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I have first-hand experience with these roundabouts. Uh, I drive on Highway 33 between Allenton and Beaver Dam on a daily basis, and about halfway down 33 between those two cities, there was a, uh, I think it was on uh, the junction of 33 and P, they had a number of accidents there that I actually witnessed firsthand, and one of them was actually a fatality of a guy on a motorcycle because uh, people just don't slow down. So they finally mm-hmm. decided to put a roundabout in there, and I'll tell you, it's been fantastic because not only does it slow the traffic down on a notoriously dangerous road to begin with, but um, there's also a lot of uh, farmers out here that have uh, a lot of large machinery and what would happen is the traffic at that stop sign would get backed up way back because of the farm machinery in the, in the semis. So putting the roundabout in there actually alleviated the backups as well. And there hasn't been a fatality or accident in that area for a long time. Now, 
granted, it does take a little uh, getting used to driving through them a couple of times, but once you get right, once you know how to navigate them, then they're no problem. So I'm all for them, and of course they're uh, they're not always appropriate in every location, but in many locations they're very appropriate. So I'm I'm for them. Kurt, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. I get see. I'm I'm sort of ambivalent on this. I I remember. I, I do think it takes a little bit of a learning curve to do it. I guess my issues with with roundabouts are, are more in the designs. There are places where it seems to me like there's one roundabout after another. So if you just get through one, and then you know you go an eighth of a mile, and then there's another roundabout. And there's a couple I can think of. It seems like you're you're constantly in in the roundabouts, and I, I wonder sometimes do they need to be one after another? The, the second issue is I, I think when it comes to design, you, you really got to be careful because there's some roundabouts, especially if you're dealing with lots of truck traffic. Um, as opposed to just cars, that they need to make sure that they are wide enough, the lanes are wide enough to accommodate, you know, the trucks in addition to the cars. But I certainly understand the the idea of safety, and that makes it just a ton of sense to me because you really have no choice but to slow down. And as I was saying earlier, if there is a collision, instead of like slamming into a, a motorcycle at 60 miles an hour because the you, the guy driving on 33, for example, hasn't seen the motorcycle try to pull out from the stop sign um, or vice versa. You're, you're, if you have an impact, it's going to be at a much slower speed as you're going through the roundabout. Jim in Cedarburg. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Well, well thank yeah, you, sir. What do you exactly think? Exactly what you're – yeah, um, just as a former driver and instructor, Jeff, I can tell you at our conferences when the state talks, you know, people don't like roundabouts. Nobody does. Nobody likes change. But they do save lives because, like you said, the accidents in them are glancing blows. They're not 90-degree perpendicular hits, you know. So mm-hmm. if the goal of the roundabout is to save lives, like the one at I-33, I can certainly understand that because if you know that piece of road right there at all, just to the west of that, there's a massive hill. You know, people come off that right. hill at probably 70 miles an hour, you know. So if you don't notice it and you go straight ahead and you're coming from the south, that's a fatal waiting to happen. So anyway. Yep. And it has um, happened, yeah. Boy, could you think how much better Milwaukee would be, Jeff, if a Capital Drive had about seven of them in a row? And you can think of all the <laughs> intersections that could use them. You know, it I, might cut down on a little bit of the problems that I, Milwaukee has. I, I, you know, Jim. Th- thanks for the call. Because that, that that is that is absolutely an outstanding point. And that's I was going to make it a little bit later, but you went ahead and did it. I, if you're, you know, we're, we're talking about ways to you know reduce reckless driving, and there, there's no question that roundabouts are one of those because it is it's really difficult to you know to drive. I'm not saying that you have might might not have some of these you know punks driving stolen cars you know who, who try to go 70 miles an hour you know through the roundabout, but that's not going to work out very well. I do think. That there is there is a learning curve, and again, my biggest complaint is that they need to be designed to make sure that they can handle uh, again truck traffic in addition to the passenger cars, because that's that's where I see the problem sometimes, and it. it you get the trucks that are in there, and they're they're trying to maneuver through some of these roundabouts, and they're not able to. They're having a lot of difficulty staying in their lane. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Paul in Oconomowoc. Paul, you're on WTMJ. Good morning, Jeff. Hi, Paul. Um, first things is uh, the rain is the rain is subsided. I'm in the west side of Waukesha County right now, and it's <laughs> passed. So it's coming your way, and it's going to pass. The, that will be good the, for everybody coming down here. Case, 
Yep, it's it's clear out here. Um, the roundabouts, I just came to the one on Highway 16 between Watertown and Exonia, and I did a count. It's The roundabout sign that states 15 mile an hour with the circle sign with the arrows going around and around is 13 seconds before the roundabout. It should be a lot closer than that or a second one or a larger one because by the time you get to the roundabout, you've forgotten that you saw the 15-mile-an-hour speed limit 13 seconds back. Number right. two is the roundabouts are, without a doubt, definitely safer, and I go through a lot of them because I cover this whole state by myself for, for my company. And the safety factor is definitely there. And the other good point is it gets people off your ass when you go into the roundabout and then accelerate back through the, the roundabout and get going. The problem I have with roundabouts is we had Mario Andretti and A.J. Floyd and Al Unser trying to race and beat everybody through the roundabouts. And right. I see this all of the time. Somebody always has to be the lead car. And I'm frequently right. in roundabouts where I go three-quarters of the way around the roundabout, and they put my blinker on left that I'm going to continue in the roundabout, and people pull out right in front of me. So they forget yeah. the car that's in the roundabout has the right of way. Nobody seems to know that. And the biggest problem I have with roundabouts is people speed up to go through the roundabout to show that they got A.J. Foyt syndrome. <laughs> Paul, thanks for the call. I, I, there is definitely, I think, a, there's a learning curve to it. And, and I, I acknowledge when you first started seeing these, when they first started appearing, I, I was kind of guilty of that, too. What, what is this? But once you get used to it, there, there's no question it, it works fine. And this is definitely the wave of the future. This is Charlie XCS broadcasting. <clears throat> we're broadcasting from Summerfest. They're performing at the BMO Harris Pavilion this evening. We're, we're absolutely <clears throat> inundated with texts from people talking about roundabouts and people all over the map. But I think most folks say, well, something similar to this. Jeff, I got used to them when I lived in Nina. I absolutely love them. I understand how they can be frustrating for people who don't know how they work. But I think that they are actually awesome. Um, Jeff, I like roundabouts. The bigger ones are better. I wish they would do multiple exit roundabouts rather than the repeated roundabouts that I don't particularly care for. Um, it, it, this is it. Look, this is definitely the wave of the future. And I, I guess the the bottom line of all this is for people who don't like it, <clears throat> you're going to have to get used to it. You're going to probably have to figure out how to, to work it because, again, not it's not just cost. But obviously the fact that they're cheaper to install and much easier to maintain, the traffic lights, that's a factor. And I, I think the overriding thing is, is the safety. Again, I don't know that the statistics say that there's less collisions because of roundabouts, but they definitely support that there's less serious injuries because of roundabouts just because you're, you're not having that, that T-bone effect where you result in, you know, instead of $2,000 in damage to your car, you end up with somebody in the morgue. So it is the way of the future, <clears throat> just as a sidelight, if you, like me, travel that route on Highway 33 around Highway I between West Bend and Sockville on any sort of occasion, be prepared to find alternate routes because they're putting in a roundabout and it's taken them 60 days to do it. You do wonder why it takes 60 days to do it, but I'm not going to go down that road construction route. All right. I'm intrigued by your reaction to this story. There's a, a series of restaurants in Chicago, and restaurants depend on Lots of stuff. Word of mouth, 
advertising. But a lot of people decide to go to restaurants based on reviews that they see on the Internet, right? You know, you're, you're like, well, um, I, I've heard about this new restaurant, you know, Jeff's Place in downtown Milwaukee. Let, let me look it up. Let me look up on Yelp. You know, and Yelp is, of course, one of these websites where people post their reviews. Oh, <clears throat> this has a whole bunch of you know, four-star reviews on Yelp. It must be pretty good. Or it has a bunch of one-star reviews on Yelp. I don't know that I want to go. So these restaurants, they, they really they pay attention to the online reviews. Now, the problem with online reviews is that they're only as good as the people who are reviewing them. So here's, here is the story. A number of... Chicago area restaurants, including some high-end restaurants, have found that there are internet scammers who are leaving one-star reviews on the Google profile that the restaurant has. You know, the restaurant has to have a Google profile because, you know, sometimes people want to use it to make reservations or they want the reviews or whatever. So they've got, even for a lot of the city's really good restaurants, there's like all these one-star reviews that are, are popping up. And a lot of them don't have comments. It don't have, don't, don't have explanations. So it's not like you've got a Yelp review. Hey, Friday night, Fran and I went, my wife and I went to this restaurant, and this is what happened or whatever. So they're getting all these, like, one-star reviews that are there. So the follow-up now that's happening is a number of these restaurants are getting emails from people asking for a $75 Google Play gift card to make the negative reviews stop. So this is, it's, it's clearly scammers that are out there. Apparently several of the targeted restaurants received identical emails claiming responsibility for the negative reviews and stating that the scammers need the Google Play gift cards because they see no other way to survive. The sender in the email then claims they're from India and will resell the gift cards at a lower price um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's extorting these restaurants saying, we're going to continue to hammer you with one-star reviews, bad reviews. We're going to pan your restaurant unless you, you know, give us what we want. In this case, you know, it's, it's 75 bucks. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How should restaurants, in your opinion, respond to this? They are clearly being extorted by these internet scammers. But at the same time, if they don't pay the money, the, the average person, hey, you're, you're, hey, I, you know, you're going, I'm going to do the Google review of, you know, Jeff's place, and you go there and you see a bunch of one-star reviews, you don't know that those are being posted by scammers. What are the restaurants supposed to do? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is, this is Remy Wolf performing tonight at the Johnson Control Stage down here at Summerfest. We're going to have a great rainbow. The, it looks like the rain has just stopped. The sun is trying to peek out. There's going to be a great rainbow, I predict, in just a couple minutes. Come on down. If you're just tuning in, here, here's the story. There's a number of restaurants in Chicago that are being extorted. Yes, I use that word extorted because you have these scammers that are, are bombarding their, their websites, their, their Google review things, and they're giving the restaurants one-star reviews, and they're demanding money from the restaurant in exchange for stopping this. And you might say, well, is this a big deal? Well, 
I mean, there's all sorts of studies. For example, one that says that, you know, once restaurants get more than 35% negative reviews, that they find that business does, in fact, go down. An additional star on a restaurant you get on Yelp, that can help increase your revenue by 5 to 9%. So these restaurants are extremely vulnerable. And in all these cases, the scammers, they're, they're being very clear. They, they have never been in the restaurant. They're, they're, just, they're just hitting the restaurants, hoping that they're going to um, give in. Bob in Brookfield. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, hi, Jeff. You know, one of the things I've seen on receipts where you actually make a purchase uh, is they'll put a code on there where you can enter that code. as It's only good for 24 hours or something, and Mm -hmm. it actually verifies that you've made a purchase and you can take an online survey or whatever. I'm wondering if these restaurants couldn't try to adapt type of a system like that where you'd have to actually have a receipt from the restaurant proving you've eaten there before you can actually even go and enter a survey. Yeah, thanks for the call, Bob. It would seem to me, with with all the different technology that we have, that there should be some way that you could require people, before just being able to post Google reviews like this, that you could require them to at least, to your point, prove that, that they actually had to go there. Um, there. There's no question. number of people are texting that you know what they would do is they would respond by posting a copy of the extortion email on the review page and aggressively let customers know what's happening. I, I think that's a good idea as well. I would also, I, I'd call the FBI. That, that's, you know, this is, this is, it, it is extortion. It is a crime that is being committed in this regard. Now, I understand the FBI has got all sorts of things that, that uh, arguably may be more important to, to do here, but this is plainly an effort to try to intimidate businesses. And when you're talking about businesses like the restaurant industry that has just been absolutely crushed over the course of the last few years, that these scammers would target them is nothing short of appalling. A um, number of texts here, Jeff. Um, I, I think uh, reviews stopped being accurate five to ten years ago. Um, y- yeah, there, there's no question about that, and, and that's the problem that you always run into when you're when you're basing stuff on Yelp. But let, let's face it, this is just human nature. This is how people like do things nowadays. Jeff, we as a society are getting exactly what we deserve. People, restaurants, other businesses, etc. We are all allowing our lives to be controlled by social media. This is allowing us all to become victims of scammers, identity thieves, lazy people, and others that would normally have no voice if not for you know, social media. I, I think there's an element of that as well. Jeff, I work at one of the best restaurants in Ozaki County. First of all, the restaurant should let the FBI know for sure. Second of all, if there's only one one-star review, most folks check in Google reviews. They won't take that too seriously. No, that's true. But what's going on in Chicago is that these restaurants are getting a ton of one-star reviews Never with comments. It's just one-star review, one-star review. So if you look at it, you say, my God, this restaurant's got 15 or 20 of these one-star reviews, and I'm not going to go there. It's not right. I agree. Call the FBI. Post. I think you, you post the notice of this so you let the customers know what's going on. And I do agree that there's got to be some way of controlling this to make sure that if you, if you want to pan a place, that you at least had to be at that place. The world's largest music festival is happening now. We're live on the Summerfest grounds of the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone. Now broadcasting from the fellow windows and doors of Wisconsin WTMJ Mobile Studio. Here's your host, 
Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. We are, of course, broadcasting from the lakefront, where I am pleased to report that the rain has stopped and the sun is coming out. Like I say, there's going to be some great rainbows, I think, that are going to be occurring soon. It is very, very nice down here right now. If you're coming down, maybe bring a sweatshirt or something like that, but don't let... Don't let this stop you from coming down and enjoying what is the final week of Summerfest. This is Summerfest under the new model, that is three weekends, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, as opposed to an 11-day festival starting on a Wednesday or a Thursday and then running through the following Sunday with a couple days off. And I, I, I actually, I think... It's going to take a little bit of time. I don't know that the results from this year are necessarily going to be indicative of of where the festival goes in the future because, on on the one hand, I I understand exactly why Summerfest has done this because Milwaukee, southeastern Wisconsin, Wisconsin, it's kind of a weekend town, and attendance numbers earlier in the week and on Sundays tended to not be particularly good. At the same time, by moving to this three-week festival, it does feel to me like you kind of lose a little bit of energy. It seems like more, I don't know, separate, you know, a couple-day events as opposed to a giant festival. But I'll I'll let smarter people than me figure out what the long-term of this is. Speaking of smarter people than me, the state Supreme Court came down with a number of decisions today. The one I want to talk about is the decision with regard to drop boxes. What is a drop box? Dropbox is something that they really kind of created, was created by a number of election clerks during the pandemic. And the idea when you know COVID was raging, the idea was people didn't want to be around other people. And so the idea was let's make it as easy as possible for people to vote. So in a number of municipalities across the state, they would have drop boxes um, that were, I guess, as near as I could describe it, they would be kind of like like mailboxes. But instead of putting U.S. mail in them, you would get your absentee ballot, you would fill it out, and you could drop off that completed ballot in the drop box, as opposed to sending it through the mail or as opposed to physically bringing it and giving it to somebody at the clerk's office that like uh, would typically be done. So the argument was... Is this legal? Is it not legal? The state Supreme Court today issued a ruling saying it was not legal to use these drop boxes. Now, hear me out on this, because maybe what I'm going to say is going to irritate people on both sides of the issue. The Supreme Court, in my opinion, was absolutely, totally correct. Because the Supreme Court is looking at what the law of the state is. See, so often, and this is what happens when we talk about judicial activism, you you might have a judge who says, well, I I think drop boxes would be a good thing. It encourages voting. I don't think there's this great opportunity for fraud. But what happens is you have to look at the law. And if you look at the law in the state of Wisconsin, it is very, very clear that the law on its face says that, you know, ballots have to either be returned by mail or they have to be returned, you know, in person to to somebody at the clerk's office. I'm paraphrasing a little, but it, it, it doesn't make a provision for drop boxes. So the state Supreme Court, in what I think is the only really potential or possible interpretation of the law says this is what the law says they're not making a policy decision on gee should you have drop boxes or not they're just saying hey the law prescribes how votes should be returned period so drop boxes unsupervised drop boxes are are now illegal now 
that's one issue. And I, like I said, I think the Supreme Court got that completely and totally correct. However, that doesn't really address the other question, which is, should we have drop boxes? Now, right now, the law says no, and I agree with the Supreme Court's decision. But I guess this is what I, I wrestle with, and I want to discuss it with you. Under the law, you can get your absentee ballot, you can fill it out, you can put a stamp on it, you can drop it in the local, you know, in, in your corner in your corner mailbox, and that that's fine. And then the mail guy comes and he picks it up and he puts it with the other stuff and it goes to the clearinghouse and then it gets delivered to, to City Hall. So you, you can do it that way. I guess my question is, are the drop boxes really any different than putting this in the U.S. mail? And if the law allows you to mail a ballot, why shouldn't the law allow you to also, hey, you know, drive down to, to City Hall and they've got a drop box that, that's outside City Hall, or there's a drop box outside the public library, or there's a drop box outside the museum, or, or whatever, as long as these are appropriately secured and as long as the ballots are filled out correctly, because that's going to ultimately be what's decided, whether there's a vote or not. It's whether the, the ballot is a valid ballot or not. So I agree with the Supreme Court that the law says drop boxes are illegal, and they can't use them. But I guess my question is, should we be looking at the law and saying, what is the harm of having drop boxes, especially given the fact that you can use a postal box to do effectively the same thing, the only difference being you've got to put a stamp on it. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. They are illegal, but should they be? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. This is Jeff Wagner. Get up, get out, this is JoJo performing this evening at the BMO Harris Pavilion. Milwaukee's lakefront is rocking. WTMJ is broadcasting live, and our staff can't do what it does on an empty stomach. Thanks to our friends at Major Goolsby's, they don't have to. Stop by, grab some food at Goolsby's, and don't forget to come by and see us. Okay, in my opinion, the state Supreme Court got it exactly right this morning when they said that state law does not allow for the use of drop boxes. In other words, you get the absentee ballot, and just being able to go and have an unsupervised box like outside the library or whatever. The Wisconsin Elections Commission had advised clerks that this was okay. And so based on that advice, some clerks decided to do this. That advice was incorrect, and now the Supreme Court has cleared up the fact that you can't do it. I guess, and I, I appreciate that, and I think they're right. If you look at the law, I think that is the right decision. However, the, the overriding question is, don't we really want to make it easier for people to vote? And at, at the end of the day, and I understand we, we want to be wary of voter fraud and things like that, but if, if I can vote absentee and I've got that absentee ballot and I fill it out properly and it, it's a valid ballot, does it really make any difference whether I put a stamp on it or write the prepaid envelope or whatever and put it in the mailbox or alternatively whether I, I drop it off, I don't know, outside of City Hall in their secure drop box. I mean, is it any different? I would actually argue that 
it's probably safer, with all due respect to my friends who work for the postal system, it, it's arguably safer to drop it off in the lockbox because then only the clerk is going to handle it. Whoever it is that collects those ballots once or twice a day from, from the lockbox, then all the different steps it's going to go through and all the different times it's going to be handled when you put it in a mailbox. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Vincent in Milwaukee. Vincent, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, the way our mail's been delivered this year, I, 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 this is certainly not secure to put it in a mailbox. The fact is the delays are, are, are reported all over the country. Uh, the fact is is that I think it would be safer uh, if for for uh, individuals who are elderly or disabled. You know, it would be easier for them to drop them off the uh, drop box and to go all the way downtown or to whatever you have to go to the municipal and you have to go to to mm-hmm. try to drop these uh, uh, ballots off. I, I think it should it, it should be law. And the fact is, uh, and it's also last time me and my wife uh, uh, dropped our ballot off at the library. The fact is, they they were monitored. There were people there who were monitoring the uh, people putting them in. So 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 can we do that? Is that illegal? I thought they um, said that if it was monitored that you could do it. Well, I, I know that was the interpretation that the Milwaukee election clerk took after the injunction came out. To tell you the truth, Vince, that the opinion is about 100 pages long, and I haven't read it in detail. So I don't want to give election law <laughs> advice on the radio. So I don't know for sure okay. the answer to your question. But thanks for the call. But I, I, and and that's, that's a fair question. The, the other question that's still outstanding is um, can you can – you, can you mail an absentee ballot for for somebody else? Because the way the statute's written, it's it says that you're supposed to do it yourself. And I I pass on that one as well, um, just because I haven't read the opinion in full. I think that's still kind of an open question that's there. But I think you could solve a lot of this. And I understand the I understand the the argument. What you want to avoid doing is you want to avoid an activist group or a political party from going around and collecting the, these ballots and then turning them in and and mass and the idea is did you are some of the ballots not legitimate is there some degree of coercion that goes on here and i appreciate that there there's an interest in that but at the same time we do i think want to make it easier for people to vote and i'm I, as a conservative, I, I'm, I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of, hey, winning the, the argument of ideas. And, and I, I understand why you want to have some sort of controls on it. But, again, I can't, I can't get past the notion that if we let people mail a ballot, can we not also – why also not let them put it in a, in a drop box? I just see no increased level for fraud that comes as a result of this. And I think it ends up you know, making it easier for people – um, to vote. Jeff, I think it should be illegal and there should be in-person voting only. Um, well, here's, here's the problem with this. The, the, the whole idea of in-person voting, that, 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 that ship sailed. I, and I don't know if you ever had in-person voting. I mean, I've told this story before. The first time I voted for president, all right, I was away at college and I voted Absentee. I didn't vote in person. I requested a, a ballot, and I, I voted. I voted accordingly. Um, we the, the idea that you you have to show up in person to vote. I, I think 
that's just I think it's it's antiquated and and we're not going back to that. I mean I think candidly that the trend is and I'm not ready to go to internet voting or things like that, but the trend is to do it in such a way to make it easier for people to to vote. But we've always been able to mail in votes. I mean ballots. I mean what what happens if you're an avid you know okay you're you're an avid voter you're interested in this stuff but you know you you have to be I don't know you're you're out of town for for the two weeks b- before that. I mean I. I I want to vote. I want to vote in the upcoming primary on August 9th. I'm, we're going to be on our listener cruise in Alaska, so I've got to make arrangements to, to vote like early in person or vote by mail or, or do something. I've got to go do that earlier because I very strongly want to vote. But the bottom line of all this is for people who say, well, we want to go back and have just in-person voting, like I say I'm afraid that that ship has, has sailed with regard, you know, to that. Um, so I, we, we want to make it easier, and at the same time, we want to do it in such a way to preserve the safeguards, um, which is that. Jeff, if by law drop boxes are illegal, then the right decision was made, but I personally don't believe in it, so we would need to change the law. Absolutely. You, you would. There's no question to allow drop boxes, you need to change the law. Now, I don't know that that's going to happen. Matter of fact, I, I think. It's pretty much impossible to get much election reform in because there were some questionable practices that I think were used. Um, but and this this is one. I, I think you know we should be codifying stuff. I think the legislature should be doing it. The legislature put out a, a lot of ideas earlier on. They passed some legislation, and Tony Evers vetoed it because well, it was came coming from a Republican legislature. But I, I think we, we need to really. Take a hard look at what's going on with elections, not from the perspective is they're fraud, but what can we do to make it as easy as possible for people to legitimately cast a ballot? And I guess I look at drop boxes and I say, yeah, maybe this is where we could change the law. We wouldn't really run an increased risk of fraud, and we could make it easier for people to vote. And at the end of the day, what's the what's wrong with that? This is Jameson Rogers, who is performing later on today at Summerfest, right behind me at the Generac Power Stage. Former Marquette Golden Eagle, Green Bay Phoenix, Wisconsin Badger, and Milwaukee Panther basketball stars reunite to raise money for charity and to prove who is still number one on the court. Head to the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone just to the north of me here at Summerfest this Friday. It's coming up in about one hour where alumni from each university will compete in a series of shooting competitions, all to support four great charitable organizations, Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Milwaukee, Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Green Bay, Guarding Against Cancer, and the MAC Fund. I have an interesting text talking about drop boxes. Jeff, I personally witnessed dozens of people who were allowed to register to vote with no ID. All they needed was someone else in a long line in the Milwaukee City Hall to swear that Joe Blow is really Joe Blow. Joe can do that over and over again. Drop boxes and mail-in voting makes that easy for fraud. And then the listener signs his name. Here's the thing with that. To me... That that argument isn't an argument against mail-in voting, which, by the way, is here to stay, or, or um, again, drop boxes. It's an argument about, okay, you know, is there fraud going on in, in, the, in the, the voter registration? You know, in other words, is that person who's claiming to be, who's claiming to say, hey, I, I know this is Jeff Wagner. I'm, I'm, I'm Jeff. I don't have my ID. Okay, this is I, somebody else who's saying is Jeff Wagner. Is that person committing the fraud? And I guess that's 
that's where I think you want to go after it. If you've got people that are pretending to be somebody else and are falsely, or you've got people who are falsely swearing that, that somebody is somebody that they're not, you know, that, that's a crime and it needs to be addressed. But I, I don't... I don't know that there's any evidence that suggests that that happened in any sort of significant level. So I, I think I, I appreciate that you have to have a conversation about fraud, and I, I get that. At the same time, I, I don't think we need to be so obsessed with the idea that, that there's a unicorn that you can come up with an example of voter fraud in theory that really doesn't work out in practice. So you make it more difficult for people, conservative, liberals, Republicans, Democrats, independents, to go out and cast a vote. But that's just me. We are broadcasting live from Summerfest, so very glad to have you with us. Um, Milwaukee's lakefront is rocking. Like I say, we're broadcasting live. Can't do what we do on an empty stomach. And thanks to our friends at Major Goolsby's, our staff does not have to. Stop by, grab some food, and don't forget to come by and see us. You know, Summerfest is, and again, it, it was raining a like heck about an hour ago um the rain is now stopped the sun is coming out looks like it's going to be a very nice day i was here last night and i, I saw rod stewart and it was a very very good show I, I saw rod stewart in las vegas three years ago and his he's i thought he was 80 he's actually 77 but um he, he's remarkably spry for that but his, his voice is is deteriorating matter of fact he says that he's not necessarily retiring but some of the songs some of his most famous songs like maggie may which i think is one of the greatest songs in rock and roll history he i think he intimated last night that he's going to stop performing it live after this current tour ends but it, it was it was a I thought I think everybody that went there came out of that show thinking it was really great. Now, Rod Stewart, I, mean, I give him credit. Like I say, he's 77 years old. He had just a really kick-butt 11-piece band, and there were a couple points during the show that ran about two hours where he would he'd go backstage and I think take a little bit of a break. They didn't have an intermission, but you know, and and the band would play like one or two songs, and they'd have they'd have some of the singers do that. Then he'd come back, but it, it was. It was just a very, very enjoyable concert, and yeah, his, his voice was kind of going, but it was a it was a fun show, and like I say, everybody that I was around enjoyed it thoroughly. The one regret I have is that next door to Rod Stewart, John Fogarty of of Creedence Clearwater Revival was playing at the BMO Harris Theater, and by the time the um, the I, I'd hoped that by the time the Rod Stewart show ended, we, we'd have a chance to get up and at least see a few songs from Fogarty and. And, and we, we just missed it. But it was interesting because everybody I was talking to who saw the show just thought it was absolutely great, which really, it kind of intrigues me. There, there's a review in the, the local newspaper, and it's only three paragraphs. But, okay, John Fogarty is Creedence Clearwater Revival. And I understand if you're maybe younger than 30, eh, you know, Creedence is, is just complete oldies music. But if you're older than 30, you, you probably grew up with, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival. And that's sort of, especially if you're like over 40 or so, that's kind of the soundtrack of your life. And John Fogarty was Creedence Clearwater Revival. So here's the review. Back in the 60s, there was a band called Creedence Clearwater Revival. And if you believe that band songs need to be heard ad infinitum, meaning forever, then Thursday night at the BMO Harris Pavilion was the place for you. So you can tell right away that the reviewer is not a fan of Creedence Clearwater Revival, which makes me wonder, why do you send this guy to review the show? 
prior to Who'll Stop the Rain, John Fogarty, the driving creative force of CCR, told a tale about the guitar he had played at Woodstock, which he gave away to a fan and which returned to him 40, was returned to him 44 years later. It was stories like this that drove the show for the younger and more casual onlookers, those at least who have heard of Woodstock. Okay, well, well once again, if... <laughs> If, if that's your, your kind of snobby attitude that all these boomers who like want to talk about Woodstock, I can't believe that they put a performer on there would talk about it, maybe you shouldn't be the guy reviewing the show. As for the songs, this is the review, they've been plastered all over classic rock radio for half a century. Let me stop there. Okay, what does that perhaps tell you about the songs and their longevity that they've been around for 50 years? Anyways, as for the songs that have been plastered over classic rock radio for half a century, and Fogartiner's band, which featured his sons Shane and Tyler, didn't so much recapture the past as perpetuate it. Every hit was played. And at 77, John himself rarely relinquished the spotlight. The most energetic person on stage, unmissable if this is your sort of thing. Again, it, it's, see, it's this arrogance that you get from these reviewers. I, you see that from restaurant reviewers, and you see it from rock reviewers. These people that, I, I don't know, think that they just have this kind of snobbish attitude. Look. Okay, last night there were boomer shows that were out there. I, I get it. But, you know, you, it's a chance to see, again, somebody who had songs that were kind of the soundtrack of people's lives. And if you don't like Creedence Clearwater Revival and you don't like John Fogarty, well, you shouldn't be at that show. You probably won't be at the show. But the people who went to the show, you want to hear the hits. If he doesn't play the hits, you walk away and you're disappointed. It's not like one of those things where, here are some songs from my new album. Everybody gets up and they head to the beer stands. Everybody I know that I that heard Fogarty last night absolutely loved it and did think it was unmissable because they were into that kind of thing. And I guess I, my comment to the local newspaper would be, if you have reviewers who don't like that type of music or think, hey, why are we having stages turned over to these people who actually you know, remember when Woodstock happened? Okay, you just don't get it. So why have you doing the reviews? Just saying. When we come back, who do you know wants to buy a gun? This is Jeff Wagner. This is, of course, the Backstreet Boys, who are the headliners tonight at the American Family Amphitheater down here at Summerfest. Just two days left, today and tomorrow, and then it's a wrap on Summerfest 2022. A lot of people responding. My my producer, Charlie, nailed it in one. He said, I've never heard... Such a passive, aggressive review of John Fogarty. And that, that's exactly what appears in the local paper. They send some guy out there who clearly, you know, doesn't like uh, rock and roll radio, doesn't like the boomer music, doesn't like, oh, it's Creedence Clearwater Revival. And if they, yeah, I guess if this is your thing, it was okay. I'm getting a ton of texts from people who were there who said, well, here's one. Jeff, I saw the show last night. It was fantastic. I couldn't believe how good. John Fogarty still sounded. Jeff, I saw that old guy, John Fogarty, last night. He put on a fantastic show. And as far as the, this idea that, well, you know, they, they played the hits, I, I would say to these reviewers, you know, you, you really do need to get out more and maybe spend your own money going to concerts because most people who go to these shows, you know, they, they want to hear the hits. And here's one of, one of our texters kind of makes this point. says, I'm going to go see Def Leppard and Motley Crue in a couple weeks. I heard Def Leppard uh, has like five songs um, in an hour setup that are come from their new album. Nobody hears that, wants to hear that. We want to hear the hits. A- 
absolutely, especially, you know, when you've got, I don't know, when you've got an artist that has a, a ton of hits. I'm a, I'm a huge Jimmy Buffett fan. If you're a long-time listener to the program, you, you know that. And, you know, they, out of, out of 24, 25 shows that he will play in any given concert, there, there's, there's about 15 songs that they have to play. Because otherwise, they're, they're like riot songs. Otherwise, the audience will riot if, if they don't hear that. Um, you know, and, and so that, that's it. Uh, one of our texts said, Jeff, I was at Fogarty last night. It was great. I think it was the best I've seen since the Rolling Stones. Well, yeah. They're, <laughs> but again, this is what people are going to see. And if you don't like the music, well, then you, you should probably, I don't know. I'm sure there's somebody playing somewhere else on some other stage. You know, if you're a headbanger, you can find that. That's the great thing about Summerfest. But I do love the, well, it was pretty good if, if that's your kind of thing. Well, yeah, that's the people that went to see John Fogarty or the people that went to Rod Stewart. The, 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 they, they wanted to hear the hits. And, yes, they don't care if at the age of 77 his voice isn't what it was when he was 27. But if it's a good show, you think you get your money's worth, you walk away happy. And some of these reviewers, I tell you, all rights. Um, there is a story out there, uh, Cavalier Johnson, the mayor of Milwaukee, um, is, is being asked about whether or not the city should, in an effort to try to quell violent crime, should consider a gun buyback program. Now, Milwaukee tried a gun buyback program in 2014, and what they did is they gave out bank cards valued at between $50 and 200 bucks for each gun. And they got 353 guns off the street. Cavalier Johnson said, look, he, he thinks gun buybacks are a decent idea, but the problem is that the city has no money. The city can't afford that. Out in Madison, um, in next month, they're going to be doing their own gun buyback program. They do this occasionally in Madison where they give out gas cards or they give out um, um, gift cards in exchange for people turning in guns. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just don't think gun buyback programs work. And, and, and here's why. I don't think gun buyback programs are directed to the right people. If you are somebody who is criminally inclined... You know, and who's thinking about robbing a, a grocery store or robbing a convenience store with a gun, you're, you're not going to go and, and trade in your gun. Or if you do trade in your gun and get a gift card or get some money for it, you're going to use that to buy a better or a newer gun. So if the idea is to try to get criminals to turn in their guns, it, it just I don't think it works. So what, what happens? Who are the people that turn in guns as a general rule? Well, it's going to be... People who maybe have no use for the guns at all. It's, you know, the, it, you've got a lady who's a, a 75-year-old widow, and her, it was her husband's gun, and he passed away. And, you know, she's, hey, I could get a $50 gift card for this. I, I'm not going to use it anyways. It, it's people who aren't using the guns um, who decide they don't need them. Or it's people who have broken down crummy guns, and this is the chance to take guns that, again, that they're not going to be using at all, and they're going to turn them in. Um, And it's maybe a couple other categories. But as far as trying to use gun buyback programs to get guns out of the hands of criminals, I I think it's a complete and total waste of time and a complete and total waste of money. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Baby. 
And this is the Black Crows, who are going to be performing this evening right behind me at the Generac Power Stage. Milwaukee's Lakefront is rocking. WTMJ is and has been for the last three weeks broadcasting live from the Pella Windows and Doors mobile studio at Summerfest. Come by and see your favorite WTMJ personalities. I, there, there's a, a couple stories that are out there. Apparently, people are pushing the mayor of Milwaukee, Cavalier Johnson, to look at doing another gun buyback program as a way of call, uh, curbing gun violence in the city. I, I roll my, and, and he says, look, we can't do it because we don't have the money. And, and that's, I, I, even if you had the money, my argument would be this is not the best way to spend it because gun buyback programs just do not work for a large number of, of reasons. Notably, it's not the criminals who are turning in those guns. Our effort at trying to deal with gun violence needs to be concentrated on getting the guns out of the hands of the people who are going to commit them, use them to commit crime. The fact that you have, you know, somebody, some senior citizen who's got, a, you know, a broken down gun that hasn't been looked at for 35 years in a shoebox somewhere in a closet, paying that person to turn in their gun does nothing to solve the overall crime problem. Bill in Fond du Lac. Bill, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Bill. Yeah, a number of years ago, I uh, had my mom. She wanted to go down and get this $100 gift card from the police by turning in a gun. And I told her, no, she can't. It was down in the bad area. So I took it down there. Before you got into the area where the police had their wagon, they were people asking in the, to the people in the cars, what guns do you have? I have cash. I'll buy them. You'll get more than $100 for them. So... It doesn't work. <laughs> so, so, that, so what you're saying is the people who probably shouldn't have guns in the first place are treating this sort of as a flea market. Here, let, let's see if anybody's got a decent gun that they're bringing in to trade in, and if so, we'll, we'll, we'll buy it from them directly. Yeah, you're right. Now, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. it, it, it that's that, that's the, the problem with this. And, again, I, I understand that we, we've got a problem with gun violence in this country. I, I get it. I understand that, that all ideas have to be on the table. So I, I don't mock the people that, that come up with this. But at the same time, that, that doesn't mean just be, oh, it, it sounds good. Oh, let's, let's offer people money, and they're going to turn in their guns. Well, okay, wh- who are the people that are going to turn in their guns? I mean, I, I am a gun owner. I've told that story before. I have a handgun, okay? I, all right, so what, what purpose does it serve to pay me to you know pay to have taxpayers pay me to to sell my gun essentially to to the city it it, it doesn't i mean i'm not the crime problem i'm not going to take my gun and use it to to go hold up a a 711 taking my gun and melting it down does absolutely nothing to make the streets safer and that's why i think when we we talk about these type of things i appreciate that you know everything like i said needs to be on the table but at the same time that doesn't mean that we go brain dead and say all right well it, it sounds good oh we're going to do this gun buy pro back program but but what are you going to accomplish? Now, they do it in Dane County. I, I understand, and that, that's Dane County, and I'm sure everybody feels good about themselves when you have people that are turning in, you know, broken-down guns, et cetera, et cetera. Well, look, we've got these guns off the street. Well, if the guns weren't a problem in the first place, 
Why are we doing this? There's a 2021 study that was published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and they had economists look at hundreds of gun buyback programs nationwide over the period of like three decades. And they asked the fundamental question that I I think that whenever we are talking about a government program, whether it's a gun buyback program or, I don't know, a road construction program or a spending program to relief, to reduce poverty, whatever it is, there, there's, there's one three-letter, one three-word question that we should be asking. And that question is, does it work? It's that simple. Does it work? And this study says after looking at you know, hundreds of programs over three decades, what they've decided is, no, gun-back programs just don't work. They do little or nothing to reduce gun crime or firearm-related violence, which then raises the question of if it does nothing, why are we bothering? Kind of like we have a problem with reckless driving in the city of Milwaukee, right? Everybody agrees. And everybody is looking for ideas to stop the reckless driving. Okay, well, when we talk about things like, all right, universal driver's education, that, that, that my question is, does it work? And, and I think most of us would understand, no, it, it's not going to work. The people that are blowing through red lights at 85 miles an hour in stolen cars, that driver's ed isn't going to make any difference to them anyways. What are you supposed to teach in driver's ed? Oh, excuse me, don't go steal cars and don't drive 80 miles an hour and blow through red lights. All right, I mean, if you're inclined to do that, having a driver's ed class isn't going to make much difference one way or the other. It's the same thing of, okay, we're trying to curb reckless driving, so let's lower the speed limit at five miles an hour. <sighs> Heavy sigh. The, the problem isn't you know people driving 30 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. It's people driving 70 in the 25-mile-an-hour zone. And lowering the speed limit to 20 instead of 25 isn't going to change that. Just saying. The question should always be, does it work? The world's largest music festival is happening now. We're live on the Summerfest grounds of the Gruber Law Office's Sports Zone. Now broadcasting from the fellow windows and doors of Wisconsin WTMJ Mobile Studio. Here's your host, Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I'm a little bit misty-eyed here because this is my last hour of broadcasting from Summerfest 2022, spread out over three weekends this year. I before before I forget, I just want to say a very special thank you. We've actually, I mean, knock on wood, we, we've actually um, been able to really get through this with no techno- technical problems. So thanks to everybody back at the studio for making this happen, my on-site engineer, John Tyler. Um, you know, I, I can tell you stories over the years where every once in a while it's been kind of, hey, are we going to get on the air? Are we going to stay on the air? Those sort of things. And <clears throat> John is nodding his head. We, we remember those. I'm telling you, this uh, this year has been just absolutely flawless. And I also I appreciate all the Summerfest staff for all their cooperation. And I, I, I will say this, too. It, it's inevitable that... When you're when you're coming in and you're going to media passes and you're doing some of the things we have to do, it's inevitable. And every once in a while, you'll you'll come to one of these events and you'll run into somebody who hasn't gotten a memo and there'll be a problem. Nothing like that at all this year. The training was just absolutely outstanding. So uh, kudos to the Summerfest staff and looking forward to continuing this relationship and looking forward to be back here, you know, in summer of 2023 for the next edition 
of Summerfest. All right, here's the story, and I'm curious as to how you react to it. And this is something that I think anybody who has service people coming into their house, by service I mean people that are there to service things in your house as opposed to people in the military, it's always got to be something in the back of your mind. Here's the deal. The woman's name is Betty Thomas, and she lived kind of in the Dallas, Texas area. A couple years ago, what happened, and it's kind of a, a horrible story, but um, she she had, was having trouble with her fax machine. Who remembers fax machines? Anyhow, she was having trouble with her fax machine. And so what she did is she called her cable carrier, which was Charter Communications, which runs Spectrum Cable. This is 2019 in, in Dallas. And she says, I, I need somebody to come out and, and fix my, my fax machine. So um, she's 83 years old. So what happens is that um, one day, a, as scheduled, uh, a guy named Roy Holden, who was working for the cable company, he, he shows up to fix the fax machine. And he shows up in a, you know, a, in a charter cable-like van. So he shows up, he goes in, he fixes the fax machine. The next day, he's not on the clock he comes back to her house, and again, he's in the Spectrum-labeled company van. So he's, he's driving the company van. He goes up to the door, and he says, you know, remember me? I, I was here yesterday. I need to come in, and I need to make some, I need to, to tweak what we, we did yesterday. So, all right, she says, well, you were here yesterday. That, that's fine. You're in the van. Um, she lets him inside. Now, he wasn't on the clock at the time. And he comes in to the house. Apparently, when he'd been in the house the day before, he had seen stuff that he liked. So she lets him into the house. It's an 83-year-old lady. He attacks her. He stabs her several times, leaves her for dead. Actually, he murders her. And then he steals her credit card and money and ID. And, and he takes off. Well, the family found that, that the lady had been murdered. And... And starts asking questions. Holden, this is the guy that worked for the cable company, <clears throat> was arrested, charged with capital murder. He confessed to the crime. He was sentenced to life in prison. Okay, so, Jeff, why are we talking about this story? Well, well, here's here's the deal. The family then starts investigating this matter, and they, they find that when the cable company had hired this guy, they apparently didn't do a... A background check on it. Now, he didn't have a criminal record, but he apparently had fabricated his prior employment history when he applied to work there. The company didn't run a required employment verification, or and if they had, they would have found out that the guy was lying about his past experience. And so if the verification had occurred, if they found out that the guy was lying about his employment record, he, he wouldn't have been qualified to, to do this. On top of that, um, they argue that, hey, this guy had all sorts of problems while an employee. He should have been fired. And then they also argued, hey, Spectrum, what are you doing letting this guy have have this truck that he's he's driving around in? Now, apparently their policies allow the technicians to take the trucks home at night, you know, but... You know, in this case, the, the lady didn't know that the guy was off the clock. So the family has now sued the cable company, saying, hey, look, you, you bear responsibility for this. Yeah, the guy who murdered 
the lady, you know, they bear responsibility. He bears responsibility too. But if you had done what you should have done, which is uh, again monitored this guy, not hired him in the first place, not let him have the van, he wouldn't have been in a position to again acting in what the customer thought was his official capacity to get back in our house and kill her. And so, yes, we think you have some responsibility. All right. You be the judge. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do you think the cable company is responsible for what its employee, under the circumstances I set forth, did? Or is this one where, no, it's too much of a stretch to blame the cable company. The fault lies exclusively with the, the murderer. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is JoJo performing this evening at the BMO Harris Pavilion. All right, I, I'm intrigued as to what you think about because this is it's a nightmare situation for companies, and it's a nightmare situation for, uh, again, customers. 83-year-old woman. She, she, her fax machine isn't working. This is a couple years ago, but you know, fax machines. She calls the cable company. They send out this guy. He shows up. He repairs the fax machine. Okay, all's well and good. He comes back the next day in, in the company truck and says, hey, I've got to check on some things that I did yesterday. Um, she lets him in. Hey, he was here yesterday. He works for the cable company. She lets him in. He murders her and then steals a bunch of stuff from the house that he presumably saw the, the day before. She, that is her surviving family members, sue the cable company. They say, well, wait a second. Um, first of all, you didn't run an employment verification on this guy because it turns out he, he lied on his application about jobs he had. And if you'd run a basic employment verification, you you know, you wouldn't have hired him, but you didn't do that. So now you, you've hired him in this case. Secondly, you know, you don't have him under control. He's driving the truck. You know, he represented himself as being one of your employees. And, you know, that's why she let him back into the house. You should be liable. What do you think? 855-616-1620. Mike in Illinois. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Kind of a heavy story for a Friday, but uh, it's, I guess that's, that's the way it goes. Um, yeah. I definitely think the company is liable. Um, first of all, they were negligent in the hiring process. Uh, I think you had said earlier that he had problems while he was there, and if they had yep. a policy where he violated it, he may have been, uh, should have been terminated then. But the fact that he was driving a company van and he had been there on official business the day before, it's kind of like a carryover. The woman would have no clue that, you know, he's not on the clock. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, I know there's times when employees, I don't think, should be held responsible when they do something away from work. But this was a clear where he was still saying he was working for the company at the time and driving the company van and created this heinous crime or, you know, did this heinous crime. Yeah, Mike, thanks for the call. I, I, see, I agree. <clears throat> and, and here's why. I think that. I think that companies have an obligation to to control their employees. And I, I appreciate that nobody anticipated this guy was going to commit a murder or something like that. But at the same time, the way he was able to get into the house, the way he was able to be in the situation was under the auspices, the, the authority of, of the company, which is... Again, maybe one of the reasons why you want to rethink this whole idea of, you know, what are we going to do and why, why do we let them take the, the vans home? And I understand, I understand that a lot of companies do that. It just makes more sense. Hey, you know, if you're, you're a plumber and you're going to be out, 
you know, you got to start at 7 o'clock in the morning being at people's houses. It makes a lot more sense to just let people take the company truck home and then, you know, then so that they can go directly from their house to whatever the job is. I get that. I understand why companies do it. I don't have a problem with it. But it does seem to me that that's one of the risks that you take when you end up making that decision. Then on top of that, when you get into a situation where it turns out you should have vetted the employee, and everybody agrees with that. I mean, everybody agrees that the guy lied about his background. The employer didn't check it out. And if they had checked it out, they wouldn't have hired him in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that there's that. There's that. Um, number of texts on Jeff. Jeff, I think they should absolutely be liable. I know this can happen with even the best of people if they go off the rails. But it sounds like there might have been some predictors of trouble with this person. Unfortunately, this might get be more and more of an issue as we live in the society where nobody can ask questions about anybody or their background or else they're, um, you know, have problems with this. Jeff, I think the cable company is liable and the murderer is liable as well. Yeah, that's, that's it. The murderer is completely liable. But in this particular case, I don't think you can just wash your hands of this and say, you know, we bear no responsibility for this because... Because it's the cable company, by their failure to do a proper investigation in the first place, that hired a guy they shouldn't have, and then by a failure to supervise you know, what he was doing with the cars. <clears throat> Jeff, I think it's a very interesting question. I appreciate that. That's why I pose these. Would then every murderer have the company they work for to have implied liability for their crime? I feel like despite the lack of due diligence, they are not responsible for the murder. Well, I see, that's, that's where it gets difficult. Do I think that every company should be held responsible for if an employee goes off the rails and commits a crime? Well, the answer to that is, is clearly no. But in this case, it is different. The guy used the trappings of the company. I mean, he purported, he re- represented himself as uh, an, an employee. He was dressed as an employee. He didn't show up in a personal car. He showed up in the, the company van, and he used that as a way to get in. Yeah, I think the company has a, a duty to, to supervise him. Then you add in the fact that he probably shouldn't have been hired in the first place if they had ex- exercised their due diligence, and you understand why a, a jury in Texas awarded um, a big award. This was happened in 2019. <clears throat> there was a huge lawsuit, and uh, the, the it's on appeal right now. But the jury found for the family of the woman um, again, finding in large part that the cable company, you know, ha- had a responsibility to control its employees. Whether it holds up on appeal, who knows? Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you don't skip church because you're scared of what people might say. This is Jameson Rogers performing later on this evening right behind me at the Generac Power Stage. Milwaukee's lakefront is rocking as we've been doing for the last three weekends. We are broadcasting live from the Grouper Law Office's Sports Zone at Summerfest. Stop by and see your favorite WTMJ personalities. Um, the day started out kind of questionable. I got, got a little bit wet when I was walking into our mobile broadcast facility, and it rained pretty hard, I'd say, for the first hour or so we were here. But now... 
The rain has gone away. The sun is out. It is a beautiful day. Temperature kind of in the mid-60s or something. It is a wonderful day at Milwaukee's lakefront. So you have my permission. This is the last weekend of Summerfest for 2022. You can take off work a little bit early. Come on down here and enjoy this. I'd recommend you bring a sweatshirt or a little light jacket or something like that. It's certainly certainly very accommodating and certainly a lot of fun. All right, we've got Pop Culture Corner coming up in a couple minutes. Before that, I just did want to make an observation. It's it's sort of interesting because now as the Republican primary for governor is, is narrowing down, Kevin Nicholson dropping out earlier this week, it's really, for all intents and purposes, become a two-person race with uh, Fond du Lac businessman Tim Michaels and former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, who are the, the race is going to, there's a third candidate, but he's really, as far, he's, he's pulling about 2 or 3% of the vote, and that he, he's not really a factor. So it's really between the two of them. You're starting to see an ad war that is breaking out. This is going to be going on over the course of the next five weeks, and Republican voters are going to have to make their decision as to who they want to vote for. And I think the driving factor for a lot of people is going to be who is the most electable. In other words, which of the candidates, Michaels or Clayfish, has the best chance of beating Tony Evers? Because I will tell you, um, at least to my viewpoint, there's, there's really not no significant difference when it comes to policy matters between Michaels or Clayfish. I mean, I think they're pretty much aligned on all of the major and probably most of the minor issues as well. So it's really in making the decision it's going to be, I think, you know, temperament, electability, questions like that. But one of the things that's that's now starting to play out, you're already starting to see it, is the whole question of of endorsement. Um, As we all know, uh, Tim Michaels was endorsed a couple weeks ago by former uh, President Donald Trump. And the question, of course, is, is an endorsement by Trump at this point, is, is, does that help him or hurt him? Does it help him in the Republican primary? Does it hurt him if he is the nominee in the general election? Um, today, the breaking news was that Tommy Thompson, former Governor Tommy Thompson, who himself considered running for office, has now also endorsed Tim Michaels. And uh, Thompson's response was essentially that he had known uh, Michaels and the family for years and years, and he thinks that he would be an outstanding, you know, governor. And so you, you've got that that's there. Meanwhile, Rebecca Clayfish has come out with a slew of endorsement herself from a, a number of lawmakers, over 50 state lawmakers, including Robin Voss and, Senate, and the Senate Majority Leader. So um, both have a lot of support among institutional Republicans and big names. I guess to me, the interesting thing is going to be, other than appearing in a press release, do endorsements matter? In other words, does anybody cast a vote because... Tommy Thompson says, gee, this is who I would vote for. And I like and respect Tommy. I, we go back a long way. Or do you cast a vote because Donald Trump says, I think this is the person. At the end of the day, I think endorsements are pretty much of a wash. I mean, all I can tell you is I've never, ever cast a vote myself based on who some political figure told me that they thought I should vote for. So I, I understand it gets the headline, and that's all good. But whether or not it's Robin Voss, or whether it's Tommy Thompson, or whether it's Donald Trump, I'm not sure that endorsements make too much difference at all. It's time now for Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Put aside the heavy lifting and call the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. And now, here is Jeff Wagner. 
It's Pop Culture Corner time, brought to you by Palermo's Pizza. Delicious frozen pizzas made right here in Wisconsin for over 55 years. Palermo's is Wisconsin's hometown pizza. Here's how it works. If you're new to the program, we do this this time of the week. Every week, we kind of put aside the heavy lifting and we stop talking about all the serious issues that are going on. we got enough time for that for the rest of the week. And we have a little bit of fun as we go into the weekend, particularly into what I think is going to be a very nice weekend, last couple days of Summerfest. Sometimes we talk about... I don't know, books, sometimes we talk about music, sometimes food, sometimes travel, sometimes sports. just kind of depends on on what tickles my fancy in a given week, and hopefully you will find it interesting as well. As a special acknowledgement, though, we very much appreciate our sponsor, Palermo's Pizza. One caller, one caller during Pop Culture Corner will be the winner of our Palermo's Pizza prize package. Try saying that four times fast. It's uh, a gift certificate for two Palermo's pizzas. It's a very, I am told, I haven't seen this, but I've heard from some winners. It's a really, really cool pizza cutter, and we've got some other stuff as well. So that winner is exclusively in the discretion of my producer, Charlie, back at Radio City. So be nice to Charlie. He will decide one winner. All right, so what is the topic for Pop Culture Corner this week? Well, I, I, I'm always tempted to do music because we're broadcasting live from Summerfest, but we've done that for the last two weeks. And I think one of the big stories in the world of entertainment this week was the announcement yesterday that James Kahn, who probably best known as, as the star of The Godfather, I mean, together with Al Pacino and Marlon Brando, but James Kahn, in many respects, stole that movie with his characterization, his portrayal of Sonny Corleone, the, the oldest brother who meets a... I'm not giving away anything because if you haven't seen The Godfather, I can't help you. But you know, he he dies in a hail of bullets two ways, two thirds of the way through the movie. He was also known for Misery. He uh, uh, played in Elf. He he was in like over 80 movies, and so you know he was quite an accomplished actor. And he did the TV shows as well. And anyhow, he passed away at the age of 82. And I was thinking a little bit about his career. And all the different things that are are going on um, with regard to all the different things that he had accomplished. And I thought for Pop Culture Corner today, in recognition of the passing of James Caan, what we would talk about is we do Pop Culture Corner from the perspective of the movies. As I said earlier, I, I think if you look at some of the roles he played, you know, people knew the actor James Caan, but, but some of the roles were just legendary. His, his role in, in Misery was clearly one with Kathy Bates that I think stands out, you know, his character there. But let's face it, I mean, he was and always will be remembered as Sonny Corleone from The Godfather, one of the greatest characters in American movie history. So in recognition of the passing of James Caan for Pop Culture Corner today, the greatest movie character ever. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Not talking about the actor particularly. I'm talking about the character. The greatest. And you can define greatest however you want. Most memorable, whatever. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Now back to Take Your Calls. Here's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, Pop Culture Corner today, presented by Palermo's Pizza. Greatest movie character ever. If it wasn't James Caan playing Sonny Corleone, what was it? Let's start with Brian in New Berlin. Brian, you're on WTMJ. I'm going to go with Del Griffith, played by John Candy in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. 
what, what, well, you, you know, I, it's funny. I had to. I, there, there's so many great John Car- Candy characters and stuff, but he, he was great, and he and Steve Martin were just absolutely perfect in that movie. It's just there's so many great lines out of that. Well written by John Hughes, and uh, very, very believable, very authentic by. No, it was on so many levels. Brian, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. On on so many different levels, that would be it. Um, John in Burlington. John, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Good. What do you think? I, I, I'm i going to say uh, two movies, and it was Charlton Heston and Ben-Hur played the part of Ben-Hur, and then and, and, uh, Ten Commandments, he played Moses. So very powerful parts. Um, well, Charlton Heston, and you know, it's interesting. Of course, you're, you're right. The, the Ben Hur character, just absolutely legendary, also transformative. Um, and it, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right on that. Let's talk to. Uh, thanks for the call, John. Let's talk to Julie in Wauwatosa. Julie, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, ma'am. What um, do you think? I would have to go. Yeah, uh, your previous caller, it kind of stole my thunder, but I'm going to go with Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. Okay, um, just because, but, just the, the, yeah, yeah, you can't you can't go wrong with that. Julie, thanks a lot for the call. I appreciate it. Let's see, uh, Bob in California. Bob, you're on W Caledonia. You're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I am well, thank you, sir. Okay, the greatest movie character I, ever. I would have to say uh, Peter Fonda and uh, Easy Rider playing uh, Captain America. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you should call. I just got done reading a book by uh, about Dennis Hopper, um, who was the sidekick, you know, in, in the movie, and it, it yeah, was and a part of. Yeah, part of the book was about the movie. It's it's not a great book. I wouldn't recommend it necessarily, but it, it did talk a lot about the making of that movie and, and how it, it kicked around for years, and they were trying to get the money to produce it, and it just kind of never worked out. And then all of a sudden it came together, and they became the hottest actors and the hottest producers in Hollywood because they, they made that movie. Yeah, Dennis Hopper does a great uh, supporting uh, job there. Right. No, there's there's no question about it. It's great. And by the way, I am told you are our winners of our winner of our Palermo's Pizza Prize package for today. Okay. Wonderful. Outstanding. Right. Well, it's it 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 ends up it works for me, and so enjoy it. And uh, Easy Rider is one of my favorite movies, and I think it I, I think it, it ages well. Plus, it introduces Jack Nicholson to a wide audience. Just a great movie. And you're right, Peter Fonda had a great character. So, congratulations. Enjoy the pizzas. We appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Okay, um, let's see. Let's go to our uh, text line because we are getting inundated with text, and I don't want to uh, crimp that. Heath Ledger's character, the Joker, Joker. Yeah, that's definitely one. There's no question about it. Um, Jeff, for me, it's Robert Duvall in Secondhand Lions. Got to think about that. I mean, Robert Duvall's had many, many, many great characters that he's played. Jeff, for me, it's Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. That would be in the Die Hard movie, the first, the original Die Hard movie, where he played the villain. He was great in that. A number of people are also saying uh, 
Bruce Willis's character in Die Hard as well, um, the the police officer. Um, no question about that as well. These are just great character things. That's the wonderful thing about movies. It just kind of takes us back and takes us through things. Let's talk to uh, Mark in Whitewater. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. I would say Hi, Rick Blaine, Rick Blaine and Casablanca. Well, you know, that's, you, you've hit a soft spot with me because I, I think Casablanca is as close to a perfect movie as there can be. And I, I've probably seen it 200 times. And my wife would say I've probably seen it Same more here. than that. But, but, he's, but he's, just, he's just so perfect in, in that role. And, and you know, it, that was the role that really made Humphrey Bogart. And what, what a great actor yep. and what a great character. Yeah, I'm with Got you. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Yeah, I do. I, but but that to me, Casablanca is. Uh, he, he's great in lots of movies. He's great in the Maltese Falcon and the Treasure of Sierra Madre and and all sorts of things. I was watching um, it, towards the end of his career. He was in the Kane Mutiny the other day. I was watching that movie on TV, and that's great as well. Jeff, for me, Robert Shaw, Quint, the captain in the movie Jaws. Yes, Jeff. For me, it would be the character of Frankenstein, uh, played by Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein. Jeff, for me, it would be George C. Scott in Patton. Yep, the, the Patton character. That's another one of these movies that, whenever I see it on TV, I'm in, I'm inclined to kind of kind of watch it as well because it just it just gets my attention. A number of people are mentioning uh, Sylvester Stallone and Rocky as Rocky being the, the greatest character of all time. And it's, i got to tell you, I admit, it's, it's kind of tough to argue with that. That was so great. And as long as we're talking about Sylvester Stallone, a lot of people are um, also mentioning um, his role as Rambo. Jeff, for me, this is a no-brainer. It's the dude. Um, <laughs> it's the uh, it's it's the dude in the Big Lebowski. No question, that would be an outstanding one as well. Jeff Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man, Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump. Yeah, you can't have this conversation without Forrest Gump. To me, Jeff, it was the Al Pacino character in Scent of a Woman. Uh, a couple people mentioning what would be, um, I, I think this for me would probably be if you, you know, just said, Jeff, you only get to pick one, even though it's your show. What would be the one character that you think is the most memorable movie character? And a number of people are mentioning this on our text line, and I I agree with it. Um, And that would be Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. Um, Just because if you ever go back and you watch the movie Silence of the Lambs, one of the things that you're going to be struck by is, is Anthony Hopkins only appears in a handful of scenes. I, I think there, there might only be six or seven scenes that Hannibal Lecter appears in. And it, it's just such an incredible performance and such a haunting performance. Uh, that, that's, that Hannibal Lecter character is definitely one of the most memorable ones. Jim and Cudahy. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I, I actually have two for you. Um, okay. Now I think about it. The second would be kind of offbeat. Would be Sean Penn as Jeff Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> I love that movie. I just but I, number I, I one love it. I, oh yeah, okay, I still have the shoes to this day. Uh, <laughs> number one though, Val Kilmer in Tombstone. Oh, okay. Thanks for the call. Yeah, I mean he. Yeah, what did, Val Kilmer was Doc Holliday, I think, in Tombstone. Yeah, that's I. I think, you know, 
the the Sean Penn character in in as Spicoli. I don't know if I'd describe it as the greatest movie character of all time, but it was quite a performance, no question about it. Gianni and Montello, you're on WTFJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, Jeff. Um, hey, you know, Vito is is really hard to beat because uh, uh, you know the the, the death of the sweet. Uh, but 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 I, I'm going to go with Harry. How about Harry Callahan? Oh well, you uh, thanks for calling, Gianni. You you've also, I mean, Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood. You've uh, especially. Especially the first movie, Dirty Harry. I, I actually, this I, I was I, well, I watched it the other night. It was on, gosh, it was on one of the streaming things or something. I found it on streaming and I couldn't find anything else to watch. And I rewatched the original Dirty Harry, and I know that there were five more, four or five more. But you know, there, there's no question that was certainly one that was outstanding, and you can't go wrong with Clint Eastwood in that role. Let me see the text line. Um, Bob Uecker's character in Major League, just a little bit outside. Jeff, um, it's Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, Jeff, for me, Robin Williams when he portrayed Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. I think we covered that one as well. A um, number of people. You know, you can look at a lot of the different Tom Hanks roles. He created the, the various memorable roles. And I think of all those different ones, um, Forrest Gump probably is the one that stands out the, the most as far as um, different performances would be. Yeah, far and okay, to me, Jeff, it's got to be uh, True Grit, Rooster Cogburn, uh, John Wayne. Well, that yeah, there's, there's no question that, that he was absolutely outstanding in that as well. I'm getting some static. Some people are saying it's Forrest Gump. There's no other question about it. Well, no, see, that's the thing about these discussions. There's always different opinions that people can have with regard to that. Going back a little bit, somebody says uh, George... Um, Bailey, the Jimmy Stewart character in It's a Wonderful Life. That's a great one, too. Um, I I think, you know, all of those are tremendous performances. But to tell you the truth, I mean, I would say James Caan's performance as Sonny Corleone is right up there. No question about it. Um, Al Pacino, you know, playing, again, Michael Corleone. The Godfather just brought so many of those different memorable movies in. And we've had a couple people that were texting in that were mentioning, like, TV shows, uh, Walter White, things like that. I'm discounting that because I'm talking about things from the movies, but um, whether or not it's James Caan or whether or not it's Hannibal Lecter or whether or not it's Rick Blaine from Casablanca, a lot of great performances, and James Caan is certainly right up there. He will be missed. All right, that's it for Pop Culture Corner this week. Thanks so much for participating.